Um, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, um, the Bible's in front of you. It's page 708. We'll be in the second half of Mark chapter 2, page 708. And Mark chapter 2, if you're on your phones or your own Bible, Matthew and then Mark in the New Testament. My name is Ben. Yeah, thanks. Um, this is my box. This box is for God. I'm not proud of that. I love Jesus. I love serving him. I also love being healthy, and I love my creature comforts, and I love protection, and I love healthy relationships, and I love success. And when those things clash with Jesus, I have a real problem. I hate some of the things that God allows to happen to me, to my loved ones, to my world. I hate sometimes how much mystery there is with God. Sometimes it causes me to consider whether he's even really good or not, whether he really sees, whether he really loves me. So what I try to do with this box is I, I try to put him in it. That sounds pretty harsh. I try to make a deal with God where I will do for him if he will do for me. Makes sense, right? I will step out, I will serve, I will continue to serve, I will happily serve, I will surrender, I will stay surrendered, and then in return, he will keep me reasonably healthy, reasonably comfortable, reasonably satisfied in relationships, give me a reasonable amount of success. And if he doesn't do that, I'm a pastor, so I have to keep showing up. I get paid to be a Christian, right? But what I will do is I will have one arm tied behind my back, basically saying to him, you can't have all of me if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain. And so I will pull back subtly. And the truth is, all of you have a box as well. Your box may be smaller than mine. Your box may be bigger than mine, but all of us have a box. And Jesus has something that he wants to say to all of us who have a box. So in Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, and then we will kind of go backwards a little bit. Mark 2, 21 and 22, Jesus says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, we may not understand that fully at first look, but what Jesus is saying is no one takes a new cloth and patches it on a garment that's already been shrunk from the washing, the drying, and the wearing. Because when that happens, as the new patch shrinks, it will tear away from the garment and it will destroy the garment. Jesus also says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Wineskins came from an animal. They plugged it on both sides and they would use animal skins to carry around liquids like 
wine. But wine fermented, and when wine fermented, it expanded, and then it would burst the old wineskins because the old wineskins were brittle. New wine was put into new wineskins. Everybody knew that, and if they didn't do that, then the, then the wineskins would burst and the wine would be ruined. We're in this series called Urgent, going through the Gospel of Mark. And what Jesus wants to say to all of us that have a box is, I love you but I am not going to fit. I do not fit. Your box cannot hold me. I am the king that's come to bring a new kingdom, to bring fulfillment, to bring renovation, to bring something new. Your box is just not going to hold me. I'm not going to fit. And we'll say it this way. This is your first blank in your bulletins. I'll try to go slower because obviously you don't have it behind you. When we try to fit God into our box, we desire a personal assistant more than a Savior. When we try to fit God into our box, we desire a personal assistant more than a Savior. What we're really saying is the God in a box thing is God is a means to my end, What I really love is on the other end of that. I'm really wanting health, safety, comfort, protection, success, approval, achievement, whatever it is. And God is my hype man. God is my personal assistant. God is there to enhance that, to rubber stamp that, things like that. When we try to fit God into a box, we desire a personal assistant more than a savior. Now, when we do that, it's hard to really experience Jesus. It would be like God saying to Abraham, which he did, Abraham, just get up, leave your home well enough yet. You need to prove yourself to me enough to where I feel comfortable enough with you before I start moving. And once I I leave my home and I start moving, I have the right to stop any time you confuse me or frustrate me. If you really confuse me and frustrate me, I have the right to turn back and head back home. Jesus is in conflict with the people of his day, specifically the religious leaders, because he refuses to fit into neat categories. And there's tension. And in Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus, and he is in Capernaum, and he is near the Sea of Galilee. And there are these tax booths that are set up. They would set up tax booths, Rome, and they would tax the people alongside busy roads where you'd basically have to pay a toll. If you were a fisherman and you caught fish, you'd have to pay a toll at the toll or the tax booth. If you had goods in transit, in transit, you would have to pay a toll on them. Now, the Jews were heavily taxed people. Somewhere between 80 and 90% of everything that they owned was taxed. They were conquered. They were oppressed. It wasn't far-fetched to have a Jewish landowner lose his land and then have to work the land that he used to own as a day laborer. If you wanted to be a tax collector, what you would do is you would go to Rome, you would go to your leaders, and you would set a number of what what you thought you could gather. And if Rome liked it, whatever you gathered above your quota was yours to keep. 
all you had to do if you were Jewish and wanted to be a tax collector was give up your Jewish identity, give up your social status, give up your membership to the synagogue, give up your place in your family. You were thought to be a traitor and unclean. And when, when the Gospels say unclean, it doesn't usually mean physically. It has nothing to do really with bacteria. It's about spiritual being ethnically and spiritually unclean. And so with that in mind, Mark chapter 2, verse 14, because we're backing up now, Mark 2.14 says, As Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, which is also called Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Matthew was a tax collector. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi, or Matthew, got up and he followed him. Now, this would have been unthinkable. Earlier, a section before, Jesus heals a leper. Now he's dealing with Matthew, or Levi, who was a social leper. And so right away, the fact that Jesus is choosing a tax collector to follow him means that to the people, Jesus wasn't selective enough in his choices. You could hear the whispering, oh, I, I guess he just takes about anybody, huh? He wasn't selective enough. Now it says in Mark here that Matthew gets up and he follows him immediately, right away. And this is our second fill-in-the-blank in the bulletins. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus invites us to follow him now. He invites us to follow him now. He doesn't tell us to clean up our act first. He invites us to follow him now. See, the truth is that none of us are worthy to actually follow Jesus. And notice, Jesus meets us right where we are, and he says, follow me. I'm, I'm taking you as is. In the midst of your unrepentance, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of you being a tax collector, I'm asking you to follow me. He meets us and loves us right where we are. Our response to that is, or tends to be, we want to put him kind of in a box. We want to put stipulations on him. Okay, that's great, Jesus. Thank you for your love. I will follow you as long as it suits me. I'll follow you as long as I can make sense about what you're doing. I'll follow you as long as too much hardship doesn't come into my life. You see how Jesus doesn't do that to us. He meets us right where we are and says, follow me. Yes, he loves, he loves us too much to leave us there, but he meets us right where we are. Follow me right now. Don't go clean up your act first because that's anti-gospel. So Jesus doesn't do that to us. And it gets worse because that night, Matthew hosts a banquet in his home and he invites his tax collector friends. He, involves, he also invites Jesus over because he's enamored with Jesus. So he wants to tell his tax collector friends about him. Now, if you had a banquet in your home, what you would do is you would recline on one shoulder around a low table and you would share bowls that would include dipping sauces for instance and you would dip bread into the same bowl so you would share bowls and, and, and a meal in this culture 
was everything because it was like you were sharing life with each other. It's like you were identifying with each other. It's like you were endorsing the person that you were sharing the meal with. Now in this context, you see in the Gospels, it's going to call a certain group of people sinners. Now we know that all of us are sinners, but in this context, to be a sinner meant that you didn't really follow the Old Testament law, that maybe you didn't have any real desire to do so. You didn't attend Jewish synagogue. You were thought to be maybe an immoral person, like a prostitute or a tax collector. You were thought to be unclean. When we see Pharisees in the Gospels, and we're going to see it here in this section today, Actually, you're not going to see it on the screen because it's not on the screen for you. But Pharisees meant to be separate, right? They were the freedom fighters against the Greeks centuries before. Their temple was defiled. They went to war with the Greeks. They were the freedom fighters. They were highly respected. And then when there was some semblance of peace, even though they were still under Roman control... They had access, they had the ability to do what they wanted to in their temple and, and largely with their own religion. The Pharisees were like the religious leaders. They were the interpreters of the law. They were the enforcers of the Jewish law. And so they were largely highly respected. And so just keep that in mind. Let me grab some water. Keep that in mind because in Mark 2.16, we read this. The religious leader said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does Jesus eat with people, fellowship, seemingly endorse people like this? It's insane. It's ridiculous. In Matthew chapter 19, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 11 verse 19, Jesus is accused of being a, a glutton a drunkard, a friend of sinners. He's guilty by association even though he never sins. And so now Jesus isn't separate enough for the religious leaders. Even though, again, Jesus never actually sinned. It's interesting, when Jesus would go in to be with sinners or lepers, you would think that he would be made unclean, but actually what you see is the opposite happens where Jesus touches a leper or he goes into somewhere socially, he stays clean, the other people are made clean. He's not made unclean. Now he takes on our, our uncleanness and our sin on the cross as if he had sinned, but he never ever sins. He was just guilty by association. His reputation took a hit. How about us? We say from up here a lot that you can control your character, but you can't ultimately control your reputation. What people choose to say about me in public or whatever, I can't actually control that. All I have control over is my character. And so think with me again about the box. Think with me about how maybe... Maybe we are uncomfortable with this idea of, of showing people radical love, of coming close to people that don't know Jesus, that live lifestyles that are very opposite from us. And so maybe we tend to keep our distance. And so for us, the box represents that radical love stuff that Jesus talks about, being salt and light, that way that Jesus came close 
to people who were just kind of icky. They were outsiders. They were kind of gross. I, I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. I would rather kind of steer clear. And so the box maybe represents, I'm going to leave that stuff. I'm going to leave. Now, now, some of you are sitting here, and you're like, Ben, to be honest, I'm actually pretty decent at that. I'm pretty decent at coming alongside people and befriending people that aren't like me, that, that don't know Jesus. I'm comfortable in uncomfortable situations. That doesn't bother me as much as it bothers other people. I almost even enjoy being in those settings. Then I would say to you, that's fine. What if the box for you represents something else? What if the box is, I'll follow Jesus until he demands that I forgive somebody in my family who's hurt me? I'll follow Jesus until he demands that I love my enemies, which might include somebody at work. Or somebody, again, that's hurt me, and Jesus talks about, turn the other cheek. And I'm like, I get slapped, even if that's an insult, I'm not turning the other cheek. I'm either going to slap back, do something worse, or I'm going to run away and make sure they're never able to hurt me again. So maybe for me, the box is more oriented like that. I'll follow Jesus unless or until he says that I need to do that stuff. So I'm just going to discard that. And I'm just going to shape him into my image. I'll take what I want, and I'll kind of leave the rest, the stuff that I'm really uncomfortable with. What about Jesus' sexual ethic? What about this whole, like, antiquated, like, only sex in marriage between one man and one woman? I don't like that stuff. I'm in a committed relationship. I love my significant other. I'm going to leave that stuff over here because it makes me uncomfortable. And what about when it comes to our money, where we kind of say, that makes me uncomfortable, especially when Pastor Ben asks for it. That makes me really uncomfortable. Your money's not, who does he think he is? No, but when it comes to God, I don't want to believe that, like, it's, I I want to believe it's my money. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to discard that stuff And then my box is, I'm just going to have a God who doesn't demand my money and demand that I be generous in tangible ways. To think about this, right? What is the box for us? Mark 2, 17. Jesus answers them. Why does he eat with people like that, with sinners, tax collectors? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So the religious leaders are like, ew, they're sick. And Jesus goes, duh, I'm a doctor. Where else would you expect to find a doctor? A good doctor is going to be near sick people. A bad doctor is one who walls him or herself up from other people who are sick, who doesn't make time for people that are sick. Where else do you expect to find a doctor? You can almost hear the religious leaders. They chose this. They got themselves into this mess. And Jesus goes, I don't care. I didn't come to rescue clean and good and well put together people. And you might be sitting there going, okay, Ben, I'll play along. How do we qualify then? How do we qualify 
to be a Jesus follower. This is where it's going to get really tricky, right? Because according to the Gospels, if you are sitting here and you are last in line, depending on what we're talking about, and you feel like an outsider or a reject or you are sick or you feel lost, Jesus says you have an advantage over other people. In fact, in certain places in the Gospels, Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says, those sick sinners are going into the kingdom before you. They're beating you to it. There's some kind of weird advantage. You look at God and you have to say that even though there's immense brokenness in this world, that there's a special place in God's heart for the homeless for the immigrant, for the inmate, for the Muslim, for the alcoholic, for the orphan, for the elderly, for the abused, for the Democrat, or Republican, depending on which one you don't like as much, for the homosexual, for the unrepentant, okay, Ben, enough. Unrepentant, yes, I said it, the unrepentant. God has a special place in his heart for the unrepentant. Why? Because he is desperate for people that are unrepentant to repent so that they can know Jesus and have eternal hope. That's why Jesus came. To turn the unrepentant to repentant, to turn the unbelievers into believers. That's why Jesus is showing up. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And the gospel says, I'm accepted as is, therefore I obey. It couldn't be more different. We say, good people are in and bad people are out. And the gospel says, the humble, those that recognize that they're sin sick and need a savior and a rescuer, they're in. And the proud people that don't recognize that they need a savior and they're sin sick and they can do it on their own, they're out. You may be sitting here going, but you don't know what I've done. And Jesus is right in front of you going, I'm right here. You're invited. What you've done and who you are is why I came in the first place. Be careful with your shame. Because shame turns in on itself, right? I'm a bad person. Who's telling me that? I am. Right? Whose opinion matters more than mine? Jesus's, right? I have to be careful that I don't take ultimately in some ultimate sense, my opinion of myself. It's God's opinion to me that matters. And he says that I'm a sinner, but he also says that I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. With the gospel, all you need is need. That's it. Now, I can get a little bit more specific we're sin sick, right? And so we, we have to admit that we're sick with sin. Think about Jesus as the great physician. We have to make a doctor's appointment. Guys, I know that's hard for us. It's hard for us to make the appointment. It's hard for us to go into the doctor. I think we would rather do many, many things other than go to the doctor. 
admit that we're, we're sick, make an appointment, take the medicine, because that's what it means to actually repent, to allow the great physician to work on us. And we see that as Jesus is saying, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners, the truth is there's a little irony because there is no one that's righteous. No one is righteous. Okay, maybe one is righteous. And that's Jesus. So the third blank is, if our mindset is, I'll surrender to Jesus if and when, what makes us think that we're ever going to surrender to Jesus? If our mindset is, I'll surrender to Jesus if and when, what makes us think we're ever going to surrender to Jesus? This box really describes our sin nature quite well. Even after we're Christians, the box doesn't, doesn't really go away, right? And so this idea that, like, I'm going to make God into my image describes my sin nature really well. Yeah, there's stuff that I do, there's stuff that I say, there's really bad stuff out there. Yes, that means I'm a sinner too. But it's like this idea that, like, I'm going to just leave out what I want to leave out and take what I want to take, that I'm going to try to stuff the creator of the universe into my box, that says a lot about my sin nature. I'll take what I want. I'll leave what I want. I'm in charge. This idea of like idol worship where we take these good things like relationships or comforts or accomplishments, approval, and we turn them into ultimate things like a person or a career, and it's like, we, we, and then we're sick because of it. We're like, we have, we're fostering an addiction. I think that kind of stuff describes my sin nature really well. It's not just the bad stuff. It's taking the good stuff and turning it into ultimate stuff and worshiping it as though it's God and it can provide for me what only God can. Later, Jesus is questioned about fasting. Now, as a Jew, you were commanded to fast, to go without food for a time, on the Day of Atonement. There were special, significant celebrations, festivals, times in Israel's history. Later on, post-exile, there were significant times where the Jews were asked to fast. The Pharisees took it up a notch, like the Pharisees usually did, and they actually fasted twice a week, from sunup to sundown, what we would know as Mondays and Thursdays. And one of the things that fueled the Pharisees was, if we can get holy enough, if we can get clean enough, if we can show God that we're serious enough, then God will come back and he will visit us. And he will restore us. Oh, what a great irony that is. Because the truth is, that Jesus is on earth in that moment, that Jesus has come to them because they are sick in their sin, and they're not good enough. What a great irony that is. While we were still sinning, Jesus died for us. Romans 5.8 doesn't say, because Ben and others cleaned up their act and did a really good job, God eventually visited them. While we were still sinning and rebelling, hopeless, helpless, Jesus came to live for us and to die for us. So, 
John the Baptist's disciples are fasting probably twice a week. The Pharisees are fasting twice a week. And the Pharisees notice that Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting seemingly at all. And so now, Jesus and his disciples aren't religious enough. It's not fitting, right? Jesus isn't religious enough. And so we read in Mark 2.19, Jesus answered, they ask him, how come you and your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. Jesus is doing something really important. He's referring to a wedding, which was a huge, this huge feast. It was the largest, most social, most joyful event in, in village life. There was tons of food. There was tons of wine. It lasted for between like seven to ten days. It was completely joyful. Fasting was about grieving, being sorrowful over my loss or repenting over my sin. You would never fast at a wedding. A wedding was about a feast. It was celebratory. In the Old Testament, if you read it, God presents himself as the bridegroom and Israel is his bride. Not even the Messiah was spoken of as the bridegroom to Israel. That's, that's reserved for God alone. Now, Jesus is here, and he's on earth, and he is presenting himself as the bridegroom of the church, meaning everybody who believed in him would enter into this kind of marriage relationship, sort of, where he's the bridegroom, and we, his followers, his church, his believers, are the bride. Jesus is also saying more than that. He's saying, I'm the son of God. That imagery about the bridegroom that's only reserved for God in the Old Testament, that's me. That's me. Fine, Jesus. You win. We won't fast. You're here. Let's set up shop. The kingdom's here. We surrender. Let's party for eternity. Woo! Verse 20. Jesus continues, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Now you're leaving us? Jesus, my head is on a swivel. You want to know why I have this box? I don't get you at all. As soon as I ying, you yang. As soon as I up, you down. As soon as I left, you right. Not making a political statement, left and right. Now you're leaving me? Jesus is talking, among other things, about the crucifixion and what follows it. And so now, Jesus, on top of everything else, now Jesus doesn't make enough sense. He's not religious enough. He's not separate enough. He's not selective enough. And now, he doesn't make enough sense. He doesn't fit at all. I can't even get, I can't even stuff Jesus' arm in there. I can't even get a hand in there. He just, he won't go. Jesus knows, as he's on earth, that someone has to pay for our sin. It's, it's why Jesus is so accepting. It's why he's able to come alongside sin-sick people, the outcasts, the rejects. He's able to do that so, so easily, so fluidly, because he knows that somebody has to pay. He knows that he's going to be the one that goes to the cross to pay. The friend of sinners, Jesus, 
is also the judge of sinners. But imagine Jesus as the judge, except here he sets down his gavel and he takes off his judge garb and he he leaves the bench and he goes and takes the seat of the one that's being prosecuted, of the one who is condemned. The judge of sinners becomes the ultimate friends of friend of sinners because he takes our place in the courtroom. Your fourth blank. On the cross, Jesus didn't conform to his followers' expectations. He didn't conform to his followers' expectations. And yet, God was doing his very best work. Imagine that you were one of the disciples that could actually stomach being there while your rabbi, your Messiah, your hope was being crucified. You would have had a lot of thoughts, but one of them would have been, how could God allow this to happen to the best person that's ever walked this earth? How could God give us hope and then take it away and kill it? This is the Messiah, and if he's on the cross, we have no hope. You would have had to have gone home, back to your trade as a fisherman, only now you would have done it without any hope because your hope has been dashed against the rocks. And yet, even though you can't see it in that moment, God is doing his most brilliant, amazing work that he's ever done for the human race. He's offering all of us, not just the people of the day, everyone who came before and everybody who would come after, reconciliation with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's offering us forgiveness. He's offering us eternity. He's offering us hope. He's doing the most brilliant thing he could ever have done for the human race. And we can't see it. We can't see it. Because it doesn't fit. And so we think about completely giving up. Do you think that God's any different today? Do you think he's any different? That just because we can't see it or it doesn't fit doesn't mean that God's not with us, doesn't mean that God's not working in our pain, and doesn't mean that God won't take us away from our pain. He won't leave us in that space forever. This the cross plus the resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Easter, means that we can trust him. Thank you, God, that you don't fit in my box. Because if you fit, I'd be out of hope. I'd have momentary hope, but I have no long-term hope at all if you decided to fit into my box. Let's look at a few verses in John 3.16. Actually, actually, don't turn there. I always forget, you know, you don't have it on the screen behind you. I'm so conditioned, right? I have it, but you don't. Just trust me. Listen to these words from another gospel, from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It's like 
we're in denial sometimes. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not really condemned apart from Jesus. Maybe I can make it right on my own. Maybe I'm not really that bad. I know the world's broken, but maybe I can do the right combination of things that will bring me joy in this life where it won't be fleeting, where I'll be able to hold on and we're in denial and, and we, we, take we try to stuff God down into the box and we're working really hard and we're really anxious and it's like we're taking a dry rag and we're trying to squeeze and get something out of it and it's just not really working very much. And just listen to what I just read in John 3, that Jesus already gave himself. God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus already did the work on the cross and said, it is finished. It's not up in the air. God's not holding a carrot in front of you. You better behave or else. Picture Jesus with his disciples in Jesus' darkest hour. He's like, can you please just pray along with me because I'm so anxious right now. If you could just pray along with me, it would just alleviate a little anxiety. And they fall asleep. And they can't even do it. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't go, it's off. It's over. And then he ascends back to heaven without offering himself as a sacrifice. It's already done. It's finished. Jesus went through. He took all our rejection, all our betrayal. He took it all to the cross. He used his power not to get himself off the cross, but to stay on the cross to offer himself a ransom sacrifice for our sins. Nothing that you can do, nothing you can do that his love can't bear. Nothing. Nothing that you can do will wear him or his love out for you. It's already done. It's already finished. Jesus wants to save us from ourselves. Jesus wants to save us from our boxes. I want to finish with a quote from Tim Keller. And again, you can't see it, but just listen as I read this slowly. This is from Tim Keller in his book on prayer. If we can't say, thy will be done from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know any peace. We will feel compelled to try to control people and control our environment and make things the way we believe they ought to be. Yet to control life like this is beyond our, our abilities and we will just dash ourselves upon the rocks. Jesus comes to us and says, follow me. And we say, where are we going? What's the plan? What's in it for me? As long as you do X, I will do Y. But you look at the cross, you look at the resurrection, and you get melted by Jesus' love. And when you and I are melted by his love, what we do to this box is, we toss it, or it melts. That's what happens. And what we say is when the box isn't there, we say, on your terms, you decide. You're in control. I'm not going to wait to follow you. I'm not going to withhold. I'm not going to consider that maybe you're not good. When you do this, when you toss the box, it's scary, but it's the best place to be where there's nothing between you 
and God, where there is just full surrender, when you can really look at your life and say, the brokenness of this world makes me anxious. And yet, God, I am open to the thought that you are going to allow some degree of suffering in my life. But as soon as I lean into that, if I don't have a box and I open my heart and my mind up to who God is and what he might want to do in those moments, the scriptures just jump off the page. The stuff that he says about suffering, it's right there for me. He is a God who, yes, he wants to deliver me and, and protect me, but he really also wants to work in the midst of my brokenness. He wants to reveal himself to me in the middle of my pain. He wants to speak. Will we allow him to, or do our boxes prevent that? If the box isn't in the way, we realize, wow, this is so powerful. It's scary, but there's nowhere else I would rather be. And then we have this peace that starts to develop that outlasts any circumstances, that's deeper than any circumstances, so that when the mountains crumble into the heart of the sea or we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are able to connect to God's presence both now with us and the fact that he's not going to leave us in that place. And we're able to walk without panicking because we know he's in control and he loves us and he's, gonna, he's not going to waste it and he's not going to leave us there. It's scary, but it's also refreshing. Now, last thing, don't be scared or be frustrated if you surrender one day and the next day you wake up and the box is sitting there again. This is part of our nature, right? It's never completely going away. The box will represent itself to you and we will have to be in the habit of going, I know what you're offering. I don't want it. I'm choosing you, Lord, not on my terms, on your terms. You get to decide. I'm your servant and I'm here and I want you to speak because I'm listening. I trust you. I want to trust you more. I believe, help my unbelief. Come to me as is and do whatever it is that you want to do. And I've never met a Christian that's sorry that they did.